All right, so back again in Genesis. If you weren't with us last week, um, we were in Genesis uh, 10 and 11, spent some time in a genealogy, which is not your typical fair, not typically where most of us spend lots of times, but we saw some things that, um, uh, that I hope were uh, encouraging and challenging to you. And this week, once again, we will begin in a genealogy. So two weeks in a row preaching from a genealogy, um, and I got to say that um, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. It's been a good it's been a good uh, good experience for me to to work through them and see what God would teach us in what might seemingly look like just a list of names that are hard to pronounce with people we've never heard of, that there's actually stuff that's there for us and for our edification. Uh, if you'll remember, last week, uh, if you, and this is more review for if you were here, even if you weren't here, kind of give you what, what we said when we looked at that genealogy is that we saw that there was intentionality on part of the author. So he's including different things under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, intentionally putting details, putting people, putting tidbits, all of these things that are going on. He's intentionally put those in there. We're going to see that again this week. There's intentionality. There's also unity. It's helping to bridge different things. It's, it's cohesive. There's a, there's a unifying aspect to it that's there. And then there's also instruction. And so I hope that this morning um, that as we, as we go through this genealogy and then look at the call of Abram, uh, we will be able to uh, see some of those very same things. So what I want to do is I want us to read the passage together. Before we do that, we're going to pray, um, and then we will we'll read the passage and, and jump right in. So let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. Thank you that when we walk away, you remain steadfast. Thank you that when we posture and pose, you remain true. And unchanging. So God, I pray this morning that you would um, break our hearts over things that might need to be broken, that you would open our eyes to things we need to see, that you would move us to respond in a way that reflects we understand your greatness and your goodness and your mercy and your grace. And may we exalt Jesus even more in our lives because of this word. Holy Spirit, we, we need you. I cannot say words that change lives. And we cannot hear words that will change our lives apart from your working and your power. So as you guided Moses and protected these words, I pray that you would guide our thinking, guide our speaking and our hearing, and that we wouldn't take this simply as an exercise of something that we do on a Sunday morning, coming together, singing, hearing a sermon, singing and leaving, but that this would be a time when we would meet with you. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come in power, and that this time and this word would wreak a holy havoc in our souls so that we are stirred up with deep affections for Jesus, longings for holiness and righteousness, and our desire to be who you've created us to be and called us to be. 
we love you and we're desperate for you this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we did last week, we're going to read the entire passage, uh, which means we'll be reading for a little bit. Um, and in, in recognition of something that we said last week, we do this from time to time. I'll ask you if you'll do it with me this morning. I'll ask you if you'd stand as we read God's Word. Um, this, there's some biblical precedence to this. The, Ezra called the people of Israel together, and as they read the law of God, everyone stood for hours and hours and hours. It's not that long. Um, you'll be here for a few minutes, but just in recognition and honor that this is the word of the Lord. So let's read, starting Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived from after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Her Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they, be, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the, to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. You can be seated. Um, before we dive into this text, which again, 
we, 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 we see genealogy, narrative text, story. Uh, before we dive into this, I want to read a quote from a guy by the name of J.I. Packer. Um, and it, it comes from his book called Knowing God. And the reason that I read this quote is because he deals with something that I think a lot of us deal with. Oftentimes when we, we read the Bible, we read the stories, and we read the stories about people, but we have a hard time making a connection between us and them. And we, we just kind of wrestle with that. We're not sure what that looks like, how that's supposed to be. Um, and sometimes we force it, and sometimes it just causes us not to want to continue on. Packer writes this. I think this is helpful. This is the way we approach it, and this is kind of picking up in kind of mid-paragraph. It is all intensely interesting, but it seems very far away. It all belongs to that world, not to this world. We feel that we are, so to speak, on the outside of the Bible world, looking in. We are mere spectators, and that is all. But how can this sense of remoteness from the biblical experience of God be overcome? Many things might be said, but the crucial point is this. The sense of remoteness is an illusion which springs from seeking the link between our situation and that of the various biblical characters in the wrong place. It is true that in terms of space, time, and culture, they and the historical epoch to which they belonged are very long way from us. But the link between them and us is not found at that level. The link is God himself. I, I, I love that, especially that last sentence, the link is God himself. What, what Packer is bringing out for us is that sometimes we want to kind of make this connection. We don't live in tents. We don't, ha we don't have people who are with us. I mean, we don't, we don't live in that time period, so it seems so different, and we get caught up, and, okay, so is God calling me to, to pick up my tents and go somewhere? Does he, he doesn't want me to build a big boat. Uh, there's no giant that's around that I need. So we find this disconnect. What is this? And we try to force it. And what Packer says is the problem isn't that, we're, that, that there is no connection. There is a connection. The problem is, is when we try to find that connection in the wrong place. The link between us and them is God himself. So today, as we, as we look at this genealogy and then we look at the call of Abraham, what I want us to do is I really want us to keep that in mind. The link between us and Abraham and David and Moses and Ruth and all of these other people that we could look at in the scripture, the link between all of us isn't our situation, our way of thinking. There could be some of those things, but the link is God himself. The focus is turned on God. So that's why I entitled the sermon, uh, Covenant Maker, Covenant Keeper. So... Let's move in then, as we look at this, to three different things that we pull out from this genealogy and this narrative. The first one is this. God's sovereign faithfulness is an anchor for our souls. God's sovereign, sovereign faithfulness is an anchor for our souls. So we come to this genealogy that's here. And what we see is that this genealogy that is in 11 is much more like the genealogy that is in Genesis chapter 5. The, the pattern is very similar. If you want to flip back over to the left just a little bit in, in Gen uh, Genesis chapter 5, we find, if you listen, like, so let's just pick one. We'll pick uh, Genesis 5, 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. 
Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. That sounds real familiar when we listen over here. When Aparkshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Aparkshad had lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years, had other sons and daughters. That's intentional. So this, this genealogy is different than the one that we saw last week, which was more focused on listing out the nations, getting this complete number of 70, showing us not so much a person, but more the nations. So here's some of the things that are unique about this genealogy. First off, notice something about the ages of the individuals. So when, we, when you read in Genesis chapter 5 and you look at that genealogy, you find amazing things. I mean, people are living 900 years, 700 years, 800 years. We're looking at it like, man, what in the world? But if you notice that as you read on in this genealogy, the, their ages pretty much just start decreasing. So Apakshai was 500 years, Shelah 403 years, Abra 403 years, Peleg's 430, God gave him a couple more. Then you get to 209, 207, 200, 119, 205. And what you find is that there's this decrease in the ages. Well, why is that significant? Well, you might remember in Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood, God says something interesting. Genesis 6, 3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, commentators, when they look at Genesis 6-3, they say, well, that really could mean a couple things. One, it could mean God is going to bring the flood in 120 years. So man's days is only going to be 120 years. God's about to bring the flood. That, that definitely a possible explanation. The other possible explanation could be that God has said, I'm now going to reduce the number of days that man will live. He will no longer be 900 years old. He will be no more than 120 years old. Both of those are possible explanations. And the reality is both of those could be true. It could be God's going to bring the flood in 120 years. And then also God has reduced the age that people will live. Well, that's kind of seemingly an, uh, maybe an insignificant like, little tidbit. But here's what's important about that. If God has said, I'm going to do something. And then in this genealogy after the flood, he's getting down He starts showing you, you see what I'm doing here? I'm being faithful to what I said I was going to do. This is what I said was going to happen. It's coming about. So even in this small detail of looking at the number of years these people are living, as it kind of slowly gets down closer to that number where God has said, this is where people are going to be, we see even in that a snapshot of the faithfulness of God. He has said something is going to happen. He ensures that it will happen. But there's something else that's here. When we, when we get back to the way that this genealogy is formed, what we find is that these two genealogies are really, um, I kind of call them high-speed interstates to some of the main characters, right? So you, get, you have Adam and Eve. They have their children, Cain, Abel, Seth. And then after Seth, it's like, okay, we need to get from Seth to Noah. So here's how you got there. Boom, 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 boom. Noah. Noah shows up on the stage. I got something I need to tell you about Noah. And then once I get to Noah, now what I need to do is I need to get you to the next person, which is Abram. So you give this genealogy, just roll them off one after the other. Now it was important, there was an aside that we went to last week to the other genealogy. That's why it's different. The author wants you to know, I'm not tracing somebody here. I'm giving you something totally different. 
But now he's picked back up because what is he doing? He's trying to get you to specific individuals. There's a focus. There's a reason of what he's doing. He is trying to get you now back looking for the seed. Remember last week when we were going through the genealogy and we got all the way down to Eber and Eber had two sons, Joktan and Peleg. And Peleg's got a really funny name. His name means division, for in his days the earth was divided. And last week we followed Joktan's line and we got down and we see that it ended up right there in that story of Babel. Well, now the author has come back to Shem. Remember, he's the descendant. He's the one that's going to be blessed. We know the seed is coming through him and he gets all the way down to Eber. But instead of going to Joktan, he goes to Peleg. And he goes, Peleg, all the way down till we get to Abram. So what the author is doing here is he's bringing us back to the reminder that God is being intentional about keeping his promise of the one who is coming in Genesis 3.15, the one who's going to crush the head of Satan, the one who's going to do away with the rebellion ultimately and redeem mankind. He has gotten back to his focus on bringing us to thinking God has not forgotten his promises. The other interesting thing is that there's a focus in this on Abram. Now, I'm just going to say Abram, later his name's going to get changed to Abraham. If you hear me say Abram or Abraham, same guy, I'll probably call him Abraham just because that's where my mind goes, okay? Just for what it's worth. couple of things. Now, we see when we get to 27, you've got the generations of Terah. One of the first things I want you to see is that they move, verse 31, Terah took Abraham and his son Lot, and daughter of Haran, the grandson, Sarah's daughter-in-law, son of Abram's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Now this is significant. If you remember last week, we talked about those every time in the Pentateuch when people are doing things rebellious against God. Do you remember which way they're moving? They move east. So Cain kills Abel. He's kicked out of the garden. He moves east and builds a city. Adam and Eve, when they're kicked out of the garden, they move to the east. They build a city. We saw last week, they moved to the plain of Shinar, which was to the east. And all of this progression, every time you see somebody who's moving towards the east, they're moving away from God. But what we find is that Terah's family is moving from the east to the west. Now, instead of the author pointing us to rebellion... The author is giving us hints of redemption even right here. He's showing us that this is now a family who's not moving away from God. Now there's movement that's towards God. It's just a hint. It's just something small. But this is a narrative clue that we pick up on. We're reading this and we're saying, okay, we're back looking for somebody. Now this guy's family, they're not moving away from God. They're moving towards God again, moving towards the promised land. So what's going on here? That means this family is significant. But there's something else. Notice what's interesting is that when you go through all of this genealogy, they list off one of the sons that somebody had. One of the sons. They had other sons and daughters. They tell you that. They're not important to name off because they're not where you're going here. So they find out all these people had other sons and daughters. They have one son. They list them. Then they, had, then they go to their descendants. But when you get to verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, what you're expecting is for it to say, he fathered so-and-so. And then he lived after he fathered so-and-so this many years, had other sons and daughters. But that's not what happens. Notice what Terah says. It says, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Three sons. Do you remember other people significant so far that have had three sons? 
There was a guy named Adam. He had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. There was a guy named Noah who had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What the author is trying to get us to do here is to understand this is a significant point. This is huge. Adam had his three sons. It was through one of them the line carried on. Noah had three sons. It was through one of them that the line carried on. Now, Terah has three sons. And if we're reading this, we're saying, okay, it's through one of these guys. Which one of these guys do we need to be looking at? Because we've seen this pattern already. And so now Terah has these three sons. So we look at that and we say, all right, now, it's got to be one of these. Well, then we see something in verse 29 that Sarah, or verse 30, that Sarah was barren. She had no child. Remember what we're doing. We're looking for descendants. We're looking for people who are coming after. Why would the author put that in there? Well, if you're looking for descendants and there's somebody who doesn't have any children, are they the ones you think you're supposed to be looking for? No. They're not the ones you think you're supposed to be looking for. And we already know that Haran has died. And we already know that Nahor, I mean, that, um, that Haran had fathered Lot. So maybe we're thinking, okay. Maybe it's this Lot character. Maybe he's the one. Maybe it's coming out of, out of Heron's line. Because Heron had fathered Lot. He'd already died, but Lot's still around. Is he the one? And so the author's setting up this tension. Who is it that we're looking for? And then you get to 12.1, and we find that it is Abram. So what does all that do for us? Well, a couple of things I want us to see from that. Number one, the author is trying to show us that God has not forgotten his promise. God has not forgotten his promise. And closely tied to that, God has not forsaken rebellious people. Right there, Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve have rebelled. He promises to send the seed, the one who's coming, the one who will redeem all of this. He says, I will send this person. And there's been such intentionality for us to see the way these people are descendant. And we keep looking and we keep looking. And what we want to be reminded of there is God has not forgotten his promise. People have become so wicked that he has to destroy the earth. And then there's people that he does rescue out of there. Even they end up messed up. And then you've got the whole Tower of Babel thing. And it's just so much that's going on. And the author is just reminding us God hadn't forgotten his promise. People may be wicked. People may be rebellious. People may be doing their own thing, trying to walk away from God. And God is still keeping his promises, doing what he said he would do, even to the point of not forsaking rebellious people who aren't seeking after him. That's huge. Because God doesn't change. God is still a promise-keeping God. And the promises that he has made, we can hold to more than anything else this life has to offer for us. If God has made a promise, he will keep it. In spite of our sinfulness and rebellion, in spite of the sinfulness and rebellion of other people around us. Oh, the wonder and the amazement that God would be faithful even in the midst of our rebellion, even in the midst of people caring nothing about him. In spite of that, God keeps his promises. 
This genealogy points us to a reminder that this is our God. Remember the link. The link is God himself. God's sovereign faithfulness. Look what he's doing. This is a very, what theologians call a meticulous providence. Look what he's doing. He's, he's a promise keeper. Rebellious people can't mess him up. He's in charge of who lives where, what they're doing, who has babies, who doesn't have babies, where the seed comes from. Every single little bit of this is under the sovereign good hand of God. And it's that God today that we must cling to when things are hard, when it looks like life is falling apart, when it looks like life is great. During all of this, what we must do is remember God is faithful to himself and to us. If he has made a promise, he will keep his promise. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. So let me tell you, I know that there are people in this room who right now need to remember and hold tight to the promises of God. Cling to what he has said, that he is good, and that he is for us. And if he is for us, who can be against us? Because he is God. Let this remind you to hold tight to him. Second thing we see is this. Ultimate fulfillment in life is only found in Christ. Now, I want to say that this this second point is going to be similar, if you were here last week, uh, to the second point that I I was talking about last week. Um, I won't rehash all of that now. Um, so because of the similarities, I came very close to just kind of maybe trying to come at it from a different angle or just maybe kind of glance over it and not spend as much time on it. But as I was praying about that, I felt like the Lord pressed something on me. If God, the Holy Spirit, saw fit to bring this thing up twice, then I think it's something that we need to at least spend a little time on. So maybe, maybe we all need to hear it again. Maybe you don't need to hear it again. Maybe it's just that I need to hear it again. So where there are similarities to next week, don't say, okay, I heard that last week. It's just saying the same things. Don't do that. But where there are similarities, ask yourself, have you taken what God has taught and have we put it into practice? So ultimate fulfillment in life is only found in Christ. When we get to chapter 12, we get to Abram, okay? Remember, we've already said Abram is here. He's one of the descendants of Terah. He is now... His wife cannot, ha- cannot have children. Um, and what we find is that when we get to this point, one of the interesting things is, uh, I said those genealogies were like high-speed interstates were getting to somewhere. Once you get to Abraham, it is like the author puts on the brakes and never lets off of them. Because what you find is once you get to Abraham, it's just chapters. I mean, he's got like I think it was like 13 chapters about Abraham. And then you just have several chapters about his son. And then multiple chapters about his son. And then the rest of the Pentateuch is about their descendants. And so you're no longer blazing through trying to find the authors getting there to you and said, this guy is important. And everybody who comes after him, you need to see what's going on here. Uh, Old Testament scholar John Selhammer, uh, I remember in class one day, um, this guy was like, uh, in Luke 24, the disciples were walking with Jesus, um, 
and they didn't know who Jesus was. It's after the resurrection. They're walking with Jesus, and it says he opened the scriptures to them and explained to them from Moses and the prophets how everything that must happen about the Christ. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? Okay, this guy definitely wasn't, John Selmer wasn't Jesus, but I never went to a class when I didn't feel like he opened up the Pentateuch and showed us Jesus in a brilliant way. It was just amazing. But I remember one time he said something that's always stuck with me. He said, the, the Pentateuch, the main character is obviously God, but the main human characters in the Pentateuch are two people, Abraham and Moses. They are the central figures. Abraham is the man of faith. Moses, the man of the law. Abraham kept all of God's law by acting in faith. Moses did not keep God's law by not acting in faith. Even though Abraham didn't have it, he pleased God by acting in faith. Moses, though he had the law, did not act in faith, and he did not end up in the promised land. These two characters, they're huge. And so now we've gotten here, and this is God's interaction with Abraham right here in the very beginning. So what we see is that God called Abraham. And one of the things we notice is not something that is not said of Abraham. Do you remember in uh, Genesis 6, 9, when God is talking about Noah? What is it? Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then you remember back in Genesis chapter 5 when it talked about Enoch. It said Enoch, was, was, Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. We find these things, these kind of, these little pointers about their spiritual lives. But you notice none of that is said about Abram. None of that is said about Abram at all. Nothing is said about his spiritual life whatsoever. Now, that leads some people to speculate that because his family was in Ur of the Chaldeans in this Mesopotamian area that was known for the worship of the moon god, some people have speculated that they were moon god worshipers. Well, I don't think that matters because that's not the point. Here's the point. Abram wasn't called because he was righteous. Abram wasn't called because he was unrighteous. Abram was called because God chose to call Abram. We don't look at Abram and say, this guy was amazing. Therefore, God said, I want you to be the captain of my team. God's sovereign pleasure said, I choose Abram. He's the one who's going to make this happen. And that's, that, that's huge. We, we've got to get that. They don't talk about who Abram was and his righteousness and his goodness and all of this kind of stuff. It's just, there's a guy, God called him. That's all we need to know. Why? Because remember, this is all about God, not about Abram. And so we see that God called him like this. And so this is the opposite of the people of Babel. Remember, the people of Babel last week, they were building a tower. They were wanting to go to God. Now, they were doing it wrongly. They were doing it out of wrong motives. They were seeking God the wrong way. But notice what they were doing. They want to build a tower up to the heavens, we have no sense, whether he was or not, that Abram was trying to get to God. What we know is that God came to Abram and looked for him. Abram's different from the people of Babel. But then also the thing we notice is that God's going to make Abram's name great. The people of Babel, what did they say? Let us make a name for ourselves. Abram's minding his own business, and God comes down and says, Hey, I want you to go, sir, I want you to do something, and I'm going to make your name great. Notice the, the opposite of what's going on here. People of Babel, we're going to make our way to God. We're going to make our name great. We are going to set this up for ourselves. And God comes down and Abram says, I'm going to make your name great. 
God is showing us that the only fulfilling way that we're going to be blessed and have the kind of life that we ultimately desire and ultimately want is through Him. Seeking Him as He has sought us. Notice the number of times that the word blessing shows up just in verses 1 through 3. Five different times. Verse 2, God says to him, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice over and over and over again God's importance of bringing out this idea of blessing Abraham. This is for his good. What he's doing, this calling that he's got is for his good. Good. That's the point. That's what's going on. These other people, they're over there. They're seeking their own good. They're seeking it their own way. They're seeking it in whatever else. And God comes to Abram and he just, all that aside, says, God, Abram, pack up your stuff. I got somewhere for you to go. And I want you to know this is going to be the biggest blessing you've ever received. I am going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. Get your stuff. Let's go. Oh, the wonder that God would do that. It's interesting that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We who are in Christ, who have placed our faith in him, who have been redeemed, who have been adopted by God, have received the blessing of God. We have been called out and we have been blessed. Abraham is shown to us as a man who finds blessing by faith, not by works. He doesn't find blessing by focusing more on his family, by focusing more on his possessions, by focusing more on his status, by focusing more on his comfort. If anything, all of those things that even we would look at as important, family, status, possessions, comfort, all the relationships, all of these things that we might lift up and say, you know what, if I do these things in a good way, if I'm the right kind of person in this sphere, my life will be blessed. I will be fulfilled. I'll have the right kind of family, the right kind of job, the right kind of home, the right kind of friendships, the right kind of you name it. If we lift all of that up and say that's what's important, those are all the things that God called Abraham to walk away from. The call was one of great sacrifice. What did he say? Go from your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave everything behind. Obviously, you've got to take some stuff with it. But leave these things behind and go somewhere. You notice that? Go somewhere. It's a place I'm going to show you. You don't even know where he's going. Just go to a place that I'm going to show you. And what did Abraham do? Abraham responded in faith. That's what 4 through 9 is all about. Abraham wandering around to these places we've never seen, building altars, seeing all these things. So what this is, 4 through 9 is the faith of Abraham. This is him saying, yes, God, load up my stuff, go. That's what he's doing. And so we find Abraham has responded in faith. Third thing I want us to see is this. Our calling in Christ echoes Abraham's call. Our calling echoes Abraham's call. 
And as I was studying this, I really, it was, I kind of was looking at Abraham's call, and, and really there were three parts. First off, God called Abraham to life-altering faith. So he had to pack up, leave things familiar. He, God would fulfill his promises. That's what he had to do. He had to believe that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. It was an act of faith on Abraham's part. He had to do that. God called Abraham to bless him. We've already talked about that. We've already seen that's what his purpose was. Not just material things. We've got to understand, this is his presence, his grace. This is God being for him, not against him. This is having fellowship with God. That's what this blessing is. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the world today who say God wants to bless you. And what they mean by that is he wants to give you money. He wants to take any sickness away. He wants to make your life just happier. And though God may do some of those things... The blessing of God is not material things that we then turn into idols and we love the gift more than the giver. God says, I want to give you myself. I want to come and be with you and you be with me and you enjoy me. That is the ultimate blessing of God. Whether he gives the material, the health, the whatever, those are the things. And that's what Abram had. Abram had all some other things. Yes, that's true. But even if all those things were gone and God said, just walk, it's just me and you. Abram would have walked forward in faith. We see God, he's lifted up as a person who follows in faith. And then God called Abram to be a blessing to others. That's what it says. All the families on the earth are going to be blessed through him. Ultimately, what we find is that the seed, the one who is coming, the one we're looking for, will be a descendant of Abraham. He will be one through whom all the families on the earth will be blessed. Through Jesus, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That as he dies and he provides a way for anyone who would believe in him, who all who would place their faith in Christ, trust what he did on the cross in their place, that he has taken their sin upon himself, provided a pathway for redemption for all who would believe that Christ has done this. Therefore, he's a blessing to all the nations, to all the families. We see that this is what Abraham's call was. Life-altering faith, I'm going to bless you, you're going to be a blessing to others. And as I was looking at that, and I was thinking about this connection between God himself, that's our connection, we don't need to try to just say, man, so be like Abraham, be a person of faith, what's going on, what's the connection? I, I remembered Galatians 3 where Paul says this, Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations, be, all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, Paul's argument here all throughout Galatians is that we can't earn our salvation. We can't continue on in our salvation by works. It is all of faith. And he brings it all the way back to Abraham, God's promise to Abraham. And he says, God's preaching the gospel to Abraham from the very beginning. There's one through whom all nations will be blessed. The nations had just been dispersed at Babel. God is already saying, I'm going to bring them all back together. And I'm going to do it through one of your descendants. And it's going to be Jesus. And Paul says, yes, don't you see? He's already telling Abraham that those who follow in faith are going to be his sons, his descendants. We're going to bring them all back together from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Well, God has called us to a life-altering faith. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work amongst the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And two of the most beautiful words in the Bible, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. The calling there, as we'll see in the next few verses, it's a calling of faith. We've been saved by grace through faith. We come to Christ by faith, believing. I mean, do you understand to those who don't believe the ludicrous nature of the gospel that I am rebellious against an infinitely holy God and he would come down and become a person and the fact that he would die by crucifixion would give me eternal life? By human wisdom and understanding, that's ludicrous. And Paul says the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But Paul says... It is true, and we put it out there, and we place it before you, and he placed it before us, and we see the Holy Spirit comes in and opens our eyes that we are hopeless without Christ. And God says, if you will believe, you will be redeemed. You will be adopted. You will be brought near, and you will be blessed. That's what it says, because God calls us to bless us. Ephesians 2, 6-9. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result so that no one would boast. You get that? Do you hear that? He, it says that he did this so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He called Abraham. He said, I am going to bless you. I'm calling you out to bless you. And he has saved us so that forever, in eternity, and always, he can show his infinite grace and mercy and kindness towards us. Do you get how good God is? What it means to be infinitely good and infinitely holy and infinitely gracious and infinitely kind. Infinite means there's no ending to it. Our, our kids have this thing. They, they love to say, um, they love to tell Carrie. They kind of go back and forth. They say, I love you. I love you more than anything you say plus one. And so then they, they figured out kind of what infinity is. So one of them says, I love you. Anything you say plus infinity. Because they know you can't get bigger than that. Because it's never ending. God for all of eternity is infinitely going to be showing his goodness and his kindness to us. That is why he saved us. Does that not blow your mind? That we will never exhaust the goodness of God? It'll never be like, okay, we've been here 17 million years. I think I got it, God. You can take the day off. We've been there for 17 million years and there's infinitely more years to be there and we'll never get it all. That's what God has called us to. Oh my goodness. That's mind-boggling. But then also, God calls us to be a blessing to others. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
created for good works, good works towards God, but all throughout the Bible, we see good works help us focus on rightfully loving and rightfully treating others. God has not called us to a life to simply love God and be blessed by Him and then hold on to it and care less what happens to others. It's not what He's called us to. He's called us, I have created you for good works. Titus says that He saved the people for Himself, zealous for good works. And those good works aren't just let me be the right kind of person. Yes, that is important. Don't hear me say that's not important. We see multiple times in Scripture we are pushed to do good and righteous things towards God. But we are pushed just as much to do good and righteous things towards others. Part of our salvation, God has called us to bless us and then God has called us to bless others. Physically, taking care of needs, fighting injustice, fighting oppression, but then also loving them enough to share the gospel, walk with them through their difficulties, and point them to Jesus, not just with our good deeds, but with our good words about Christ. That's for people in Rock Hill, and that's for people around the world. How are we fulfilling the mandate of Christ to go and make disciples? Making disciples where you work, where you live, and where you go. That's part of why God has saved us. Let us relish the fact that God will bless us forever and show His goodness to us, but never let us be so self-centered that we would say, that's the end goal of it all. In the same passage where he says for eternity he saved us so that he could do this. And he also says we were created for good works. In closing, I want to read another uh, brief passage from Packer. The other one was at the beginning of this chapter and the second one ends. I think it helps kind of bring all of it together. Packer writes, Where is the sense of distance and difference then between believers in the Bible time and ourselves? It is excluded. On what grounds? On the grounds that God does not change. Fellowship with Him, trust in His Word, living by faith, standing on the promises of God are essentially the same realities for us today as they were for the Old and New Testament believers. This thought brings comfort as we enter into the perplexities of each day. Amid all the changes and uncertainties of life, God and His Christ remain the same, almighty to save. But the thought brings a searching challenge too. Now hear this. If our God is the same God of the New Testament believers, how can we justify ourselves in resting content with an experience of communion with Him and a level of Christian conduct that falls so far below theirs? If God is the same, this is not an issue that any of us can evade. You see, we have a hard time sometimes connecting. We've got to make sure the connection is right. We serve the same God who called Abraham, who calls us. He calls us to faith, believing in his words, believing in his promises. He calls us to bless us with his presence, with redemption. Ephesians 6, 1, bless us with all blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he calls us to bless others. How is your life arranged so that you are experiencing those three things. Living in faith, 
experiencing the blessing of God and being a blessing to others. The other thing is this. 2 Peter 1.10 tells us to be diligent to confirm our calling and election. Sometimes God calls us to faith and we hear it, but we don't respond. Sometimes we think just being part of a group is enough, just doing the right kind of things is enough. And the right things are nothing if not done out of a life of faith expressed towards Jesus. The reason why Peter would say, make every effort, may be diligent to make sure your calling and election is sure. Why is that? Because you can live an entire life trying to be a good person, trying to do the right things, and if you're not doing them because you've trusted Jesus as the foundation of it all, then you're walking in a a path that's going to lead you to destruction. We must begin with Jesus. So this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never seen what he did on the cross and truly said, God, I turn from everything and trust you alone. I understand that I need to have a life that's focused on Jesus because of what he's done. I want to live a life that honors you. If you've never done that, don't leave this place this morning without saying, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I follow you. Jesus, I give you my life. You may call me to do all kinds of things that I don't understand, but I know that you want to bless me and you want me to be a blessing to others, so I want to begin by placing my faith in you. If you need someone to talk to, I'll be around. After I pray, the band's going to be back on stage and we're going to, we're going to express our worship to God through singing. Maybe you need to do it through praying. Maybe you need to do it through contemplation. Whatever it might be, this is a time to respond to this God who has so wonderfully done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for never changing, for never being different, for never reneging on a promise, and God, for never going back on your word. And God, you are so good to us. Father, I pray that we would be a people of faith, believing the promises with belief that leads to action. God, I pray for us that we'd be a people known who are blessed by God, who live and spend our lives to be a blessing for others. So God, we love you. We pray that you would use us. God, we pray the words of Psalm 67, that you would bless us, that your face would shine upon us, that the world may know of your saving power. God, we ask that you would bless us so that we might bless others with the gospel and with the love of Christ. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.